Good morning again. Welcome to First Presbyterian Church. It's good for us to be together. Before I begin, I want to ask, did anyone have a chance to go to the documentary on Friday night, Can You Not See? Would you raise your hand if you, you went to that? Uh, and a few of you just raise your hands anyway. Just uh, uh, Oh, yeah, okay, good. Um, you know, the, the character of our nation, I think, is at stake in some ways um, in our day and age. We have so many reasons to be divided, and, and it's incumbent upon us uh, as, as believers to find ways to tell stories in a way that, that show where the common ground is and a common vision forward. I just want to take a minute to thank uh, Austin Reams for the way that he uh, has used film to create a, a story, to tell a story uh, in, in our, uh, our Thomasville community of, uh, of people who have come together, especially coaches, who, uh, who set a different tone and drew together our community during a time, civil rights uh, period, when, um, when we really, and, and coming out of that period, when we really needed leadership to draw us together rather than to tear us apart. And I think there are, uh, there are so many different uh, parts of, of human life where you can find differences that create uh, barriers and create division rather than drawing us together. Differences should complement. Differences should, should, uh, should assist us. Differences should, uh, should help us uh, uh, divide and conquer in a lot of ways. We're in an age when narratives are so powerful. And the narratives that we tell in our day and age tend to divide rather than to unite, even between men and women. Men and women across uh, human history have cooperated, have gotten us to this point. It is because we have, uh, we have been able to, 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 to capitalize on the strength in our differences and to tell a narrative that unites us, a narrative of, uh, really of a, of a golden rule of, of serving, serving one another in the unique ways that we're gifted to do. The scripture I'm about to read is, is a picture of a kingdom where people are serving one another, where people are bringing together the community because and for the sake of the least of these. Mothers have been a parable for humanity in the way that we elevate all because we elevate the least. From the Word of God, Matthew chapter 25, starting with verse 34, Jesus is telling a parable of a kingdom and a king a parable which we will illustrate with mothers this morning. Hear God's word. Then the king will say to those on the right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. 
Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, and naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to the one of the least of my brothers, you did it to me. May God bless us this morning through this, his holy word. Let us pray. God bless us this morning through your word. Not just to understand it with our minds, but to believe it with our hearts that we may live it with our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. I heard a uh, story about a mother who was at, at, a, at the sink doing some dishes. And a 15-year-old daughter came down and said, Mom, what are you doing? It's Mother's Day. You shouldn't be doing the dishes. And her mom looked over at her and smiled and thought, oh, that's so sweet. And she stepped out of the way and the 15-year-old put her hand on her shoulder and said, these dishes can wait till the morning. <laughs> Business Insider surveyed 6,000 women, 6,000 moms, to see what their primary tasks were. And then they put a, a, a cost analysis on it. And can you guess how much a mom should be paid for all of her work. Can you guess? What, 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 what price would you put on it? You wouldn't put a price on it, but if you, if you had to get all those things done, what would it, it would cost almost $120,000 a year. That's pretty good. Six-figure job. You didn't feel that way about it, did you, Mom? Six-figure salary. We, uh, we have the opportunity today to learn something about grace again from our mothers and to see motherhood as, as the illustration for understanding grace. And, and, and we have an opportunity to be gracious to our moms. You know, moms aren't perfect. and no, Nobody's perfect. Moms aren't perfect. And we shouldn't hold up a perfect standard for them to follow. We shouldn't expect or measure them against perfection. My mom uh, one time uh, did something that she had never done before and never did uh, after, and it was in the middle of my siblings and me just all tangled up in a fight, and she got into the middle of us, and she took a full uh, jar of mayonnaise and just dropped it and let it just kind of go on the ground. I practiced that. All right, And it just broke open and was a huge mess. And, and she said, stop arguing and clean that up. <laughs> Moms have uh, an incredible role in the midst of the family that draws down everything they can give in order to demonstrate the grace of God. Let's take a look at the cost of grace this morning. And let's, let's take a look at the goal of grace. First, there's a cost to grace. Grace is free to us, right? It's unmerited favor. But it's not cheap. It doesn't come cheap. There is a cost to grace. Somebody is paying the cost 
to demonstrate grace to you. When someone is being gracious to you, they are, they are absorbing something. They are paying something in every situation. There's, a, there's an old uh, adage about leadership, uh, an ancient uh, axiom about leadership that, that, that captures the essence of leadership in the home graciously demonstrated. It says, uh, of the best leaders, when their work is done, the people will say, we did it ourselves. Now see if you can follow this. I'm going to say it one more time. Of the best leaders, when their work is done, all right, when the leader is finished with, with his work, her work, the people who benefited from their leadership will say, we did it ourselves. There is a certain graciousness to servant leadership that lets other people around you thrive. Servant leadership is outward leadership. Servant leadership is other-centered leadership. Servant leadership pays a price so that others may thrive. I, I was reading about an actress who shall remain nameless, um, you know, th- just because this is a public person doesn't mean I need to tear them down by name. And I, I do wanna, want to give you an example today of the opposite view of that. It's an actress who, who is very accomplished and, and awarded and celebrated, who was reflecting on the life of her mother. And her mother, at the end of her life, her, her mother lived a, a beautiful life, a life that she loved, but at the end of her life began comparing herself to her daughter and began to diminish her role and began to look at her life in, through the lens of, of, what she, of, of, of contrast. And rather than feeling a sense of, of accomplishment through what she had done and what she had done for the sake of the people around her thriving, she began to doubt herself. And this actress use this as a, way, as, as a way to leverage a kind of agenda, a kind of agenda that is divisive rather than uniting. It, it, it diminishes the role and the value of servant leadership, and it elevates the selfie culture. It elevates the idea that, that the only way to measure success is through One's own efficacy, one's own uh, ability to say, I did it myself. I did it my way. Whereas the cultures that have thrived have had servant leaders that are others-centered enough to let others thrive. There's a cost, though. There is a cost to good leadership. There's a cost to servant leadership. Think about the soldier. Think about the soldier. How many soldiers paid a cost for our relative peace right now? How many soldiers have paid the cost for the benefit that we have inherited today? How many doctors have, have, have gotten up in the middle of the night who have taken home a problem of a patient and continue to sweat over it and agonize over it and suffer 
so that they can figure out what's going on with you. How many teachers have day in and day out, decade after decade after decade, poured out themselves and all their energy so that students may thrive? C.S. Lewis, writing to a friend, said this, it's surely in reality, motherhood that is, the most important work in the world. What do ships, railways, mines, cars, government, what do they all exist for except that people may be fed, warmed, and safe in their own homes? As Dr. Johnson said, to be happy at home is the end of all human endeavor. So your job, he is saying to this woman, your job is the one for which all others exist. It's, in a way, the ultimate vocation. In verses uh, 35 and 36, you can see that there's a king here who is elevating the role of servant leadership, someone who takes initiative in the life of someone else who has a need. And in some ways, that, that, that's a great picture of grace, but a great definition of grace, that is, the accurate assessment and the adequate supply of someone else's need. Grace, or love, if you will, charis, the same, similar root here, charis, grace, love. A certain kind of love is unconditional love. That's grace, unconditional love, agape love. It's the accurate assessment and the adequate supply of someone else's need. This is, this is the cross. This is our Savior. This is the Messiah. This is the, the ultimate vocation of God himself Forsaking the glory of heaven, forsaking his rightful place of honor, takes on the nature of a servant, and being found in human likeness, humbles himself and becomes obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Demonstrating for us a narrative that, that moves towards others to give rather than to get. I think we're shifting in our culture. I think we're shifting in a very, very dangerous way. I, I, I try not to be alarmist in the way that I'm just saying. We, we need to be cognizant that we have a, a unique role as salt and light in our culture, and that is to continue to call ourselves and others around us and to demonstrate, to pay the price, to pay the cost of servant leadership. To move towards others to give and not to get. To understand how to define grace. To know that definition enough that you could breathe it out to somebody else. To live it in such a way that you can look and say, my, my mother taught me to be gracious. My mother taught me was a parable of grace. Motherhood itself, a parable of grace. One last illustration about this cost. In contrast to what I, I told you a second ago about the actress. There was a, there was a woman who was driving, it's a true story, a woman who was driving in, in Great Britain on, uh, on, on very hazardous roads in a, in a winter blizzard, and, uh, and her, her car broke down, and she had her, her baby with her. She, she took off all of that she had on and wrapped her baby up in that and curled up around this baby. True story. True story. And when, uh, when the, the next day came and it was evident that there was a car broken down and the paramedics came and the, 
the emergency personnel came. They found the mother had died, but the baby had lived. And the baby, his name was David Lloyd George, and he became prime minister of Great Britain, one of the greatest prime ministers. There's a cost to grace. And sometimes it's even within a conversation. To be the adult in the conversation, to absorb what's going on in that conversation, to let somebody else just simply be where they are. So that there's a goal to grace. You see, there's not just a cost to grace, but a goal to grace. There's a goal. And it has to do with the least of these. It has to do with understanding what it means to identify with the least of these. How do we identify with the least of these in a way that demonstrates grace so that others may become grace-filled? Let me say that again. How do we identify with the least of these and in so doing, by identifying and being gracious to the least of these, identifying with the least of these, we enable others to be grace-filled. What does that look like? How do we do it? Verses 37 to 40 says this. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see a stranger and welcome you, and the naked to clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them. And the king is God. Jesus is using a parable of a king to represent God himself. He says, The king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, you did it unto me. The least of these. The least of these. Let me read to you uh, from Tony Campolo's wife her assessment of her role as mother. She, you know, Tony Campolo, a very famous uh, uh, pastor, uh, author, scholar at Eastern University, in you know, rubbing shoulders with, 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 with presidents and, and with all kinds of very accomplished people. And when she would find herself in the midst of, of a, a very high-browed crowd, she would, and, and people would ask, what did she do? She would say this, I am socializing two homo sapiens into the dominant values of the Judeo-Christian heritage in order that they may become instruments of the transforming of our social order according to the eschatological utopia planned from God from the beginning of creation. What do you do? I love that. I didn't memorize it the way she did. There's a certain call that we all have to empathize with the least of these in each other. To be the person in the conversation where uh, you are the non-anxious presence. That's grace. To be the person in the conversation who has the non-anxious presence. For us to be uniters rather than dividers, we have to learn to be the person in the conversation with the non-anxious presence. Don't we learn that from motherhood? How often has your mom, have moms, been that person? of non-anxious presence, the adult in the room, identifying with our need, identifying with our immaturity, identifying with our emotional arrested development, (laughs) identifying with us enough to meet us where we are, but not expecting us to stay that way. I love this 
I, I love this little video of it's not about the nail. Have you seen this? I, I think I showed it a couple years ago at a Wednesday night. Uh, but there's a woman who's, who's saying to her, her husband, she's saying, um, you know, I've got this achy problem here, and it's, I don't know what it is. It's just bothering me. And she turns to the side, and you see a profile of her, and there's a nail sticking out of her forehead. And he says to her, well, you do have a nail sticking out of your head. And she says, it's not about the nail. He says, no, I think it is about the nail. I mean, I think if you got, she said, you're not listening. You always do this. You always try to fix it. With, what do I need you to do is, is just listen. He says, okay, fine, I'll listen. I'll, fine, go ahead, fine. She says, it's just this achy, all my sweaters are snagged. I mean, I just, I just don't know what it is. And he says, that, that must be really hard. And she says, thank you. <laughs> a very humorous look at how difficult it is sometimes to be in somebody else's moment, to empathize with them, to be the non-anxious presence. This is the, the goal of grace in these moments, to identify with the least of these, whether it's somebody who has a need and they don't know what it is, or whether it's a child. It's to invite that person. It's to meet that person. It's very counterintuitive. It's to say, you know what? I can dwell with you in the place where you are. I can be with you there. It's not too big. And the thing that gets communicated time and time again by grace is this. You can overcome this. You are better than this. You can move through this. You can do this. Rather than to take on the responsibility, to be anxious, to, to try to fix the person, to try to rush them along. We do this to people in, gra in grief a lot of times. We think we've got to move people quickly through grief. And, and what we end up doing is, is we, we fail to get into their moment enough to let them just simply grieve and to be with them and to connect with them in a way that just says, you know what? There's a goal to grace, and I trust that as I meet with you here in this place, that you can continue to move through it. Moms do this for us in such a unique and powerful way. They illustrate for us what it means to bear the cost of grace and what it means to have a goal in the midst of difficulty for grace. And so I, I wrote, I rewrote Genesis chapter 1 as a tribute to moms this morning. Not the whole thing, just part of Genesis chapter 1. I want to finish out with this. In the beginning, mom created the breakfast and the lunch. The house was without form and void, and darkness hovered over the faces of deep sleep. And mom said, let there be light. And there was light, and although her children did not appreciate the light at 6.30 a.m., mom saw that the light was good. And there was evening and there was morning another day. And mom said, let the waters of the bathroom be gathered together in one place and let the dry ground stay dry. And mom called the waters bath and the dry ground she called the rest of the bathroom. And mom saw that it was good. And mom said, let every lunchbox sprout with vegetables after their own kind and at least one serving of fruit and only a single cookie. And let this house bring forth dirty laundry from its firmament. And there was evening and there was morning another day. And mom said, let the lesser lights that govern the house by night yield to the greater light that governs the house by day. Indeed, may the lesser lights be turned off when leaving the room. And it was so. And mom said, we have made children in our own image, male and female. We have created them, although the boys could really use a haircut. 
And mom said, be fruitful and multiply. Not only so, add, subtract, and divide according to your teacher's instruction. And mom blessed them and said, I have given over to you every animal of the downstairs and every fish of the upstairs. They will be yours to feed. And it was so. By the seventh day, mom had matched every sock after its kind and kissed every boo-boo. And so mom blessed the seventh day because on it, her family let her rest from all the work she had done. Let's pray. Gracious God, our Heavenly Father, how we thank you for this beautiful illustration of grace. We thank you for the ways that our moms have, have loved us, however flawed we all are, for the gracious touches they have put on us, for the pains they have borne that we will never know. And we pray, God, that you will help us towards the goal of that grace, to be gracious people. In Jesus' name, amen.